Okay, if you're alert and you've been up to date, you know what passage we're turning to, so I won't say. 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, 22. This is, happens to be the passage of our present reflection, something that we've sort of been hunkered down on for some time now. And I think it's important that we do so because there's probably not another passage that reveals Jesus Christ in his universally saving significance more so than this passage. We might call tonight Ladies' Night, although, gentlemen, you're all welcome also, because it just happens to be tonight that when I refer to theologians and quote them, there's a couple tonight, and they both happen to be ladies. And uh, one of them is our old familiar friend, the other Hillary. Alaria Ramelli. The other is a surprise new up-and-coming, well, she's 80, so she's not up-and-coming, but the Chinese have a saying that 80 is the advent of ability. And I think maybe that's true. I'll have to find out someday. Some of you will find out before I do. All right, let's take a couple moments. All we need is a couple of moments to lay hold of the throne of grace and receive help for time of need. And we, our time of need is now, and what we need is divine insight. Father, we recognize that the measure of true intelligence is not what we know, but what you've revealed to us by inspirational insight. And we ask that you'll convey insight to to us tonight through your word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. God's wisdom needs no counsel. God's power needs no help. God's grace requires no deserving. God's love needs no condition and knows no restriction. God's mercy is salvation, and he will have mercy on all. Those are just a few thoughts I'd start with, I'm starting with tonight. In case I lose some of you, you've got something you can think of. 1 Corinthians 15, 21. In the continuity of this chapter, our main focus is going to fall upon 1524 to 28, which is the furthest reach of eschatology and Christology in all the scriptures, ending with the statement, God will be all in all. But we've decided to, or at least I've decided to, consider the context for that passage and have ended up going all the way back to 15.1, as you know. So we're now this is where we are in our contextual study. 1 Corinthians 15.21, for since through a man death came, also through a man resurrection. The Greek reads sort of like that. It doesn't have a verb. 
in the second half. For since through a man death came, also through a man resurrection. And it's crucial that we understand that through Adam, the man mentioned first, death came to all of humanity. Romans 5.12 says, just as through one man sin entered the world and through sin death, in this way death passed to humankind who all sinned in Adam. This is Romans 5.12, but it can also be compared with Romans 3.23 and Romans 6.23. Through a man is emphatic in both cases, and this is something very important. We recognize in exegeting the scriptures, not only the lexical meanings of each word, but where the emphasis falls in the Greek, and it's not too hard to discover. Sometimes a word placed in the beginning can be indicate the emphasis of a verse. Sometimes the word placed at the end can indicate the emphasis in a verse, as we're going to see. As through a man, death came to all. So through a man came the resurrection from the dead for all. I'll say that again. As through a man... Death came to all. So through a man, the man Christ Jesus, the second Adam, the the last Adam really, came the resurrection from the dead for all. Paul finds it necessary to multiply identifiers of Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians 15. He calls him the second man because there are only two men that are the bearers of human destiny. He calls him the last Adam, the final Adam. He calls him the man from heaven in opposition to the man from earth or the earthly man, the the man from the dust. And as he says, we have once borne the image of the first man. Let us now, or we will now, bear the image of the second man. That's Christ who is the image of God. As through one single individual Man, death came to all, so through a man came the resurrection from the dead for all. Christ became the new Lord, therefore, in his resurrection. He became the new Lord over the dead, as Romans 14.9 says. He both died and came to life that he might be Lord of the living and the dead. He became the new Lord over the dead, deposing Thanatos in the Greek, or death, the former Lord. Now, Paul is holding out hope here to the surviving Corinthian saints, as he does in Thessalonica, not just for baptized believers in Christ that have died, but for all of humankind who have died. And that's important that Paul, in many places, surmounts what was normally considered a dichotomy between unbeliever and believer. There is ultimately, eschatologically, and in Christ, ultimately not that dichotomy. Salvation is a mercy upon all, and it's precisely given to those who have been considered disobedient or unbelieving, as 1 Corinthians 11.32, or Romans 11.32 says. That is a climactic passage. 
Romans 11.32. Now, for the exposition of the next verse, I'm quoting a somewhat extended section from this book. It's called Apocalyptic and the Future of Theology. The long title is With and Beyond J. Lewis Martin, and it's edited by Joshua B. Davis and Douglas Herrink. It's a Cascade Books, Eugene, Oregon, 2012. Now, one of the contributors is a woman named Fleming Rutledge. She has also written a book that I've just recently obtained called Understanding the Death of Christ, which has about 55 reviews across the board by theologians that are quite stunned and amazed by it. So I'm looking forward to reading it. So one of the contributors to this, and there were probably 20 or so, is Fleming Rutledge. She was for 22 years an Episcopal parish priest and a preacher and teacher, as well as a teacher of preachers and teachers. And she speaks in her communication about preaching of, quote, attention paid to verbs and their placement in sentences and how they yield both literary and theological results. And she uses, strangely here, I don't know how many of you have the King James with you, probably on your Bible Hub app. But she actually uses the example of two translations of 1 Corinthians 15.22. So this is kind of a strange way to exegete 15.22, but it's very helpful, I think. On page 298 and 299 of Apocalyptic and the Future of Theology, she says, take, for example, this resounding sentence from the KJV, the King James Version of 1 Corinthians 15.22. Now, this is one case where the King James stands out and is outstanding and outshines other translations that have tried to improve on it. It simply says, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. And then she said, Compare that sentence with the flattened one in the New Revised Standard. For as all die in Adam... So all will be made alive in Christ. And she kind of reminds me of a, a Deborah in the Old Testament where the men weren't ready to step up and say some drastic things, and she's, she was ready to. And I'm, I appreciate that. She said, compare this with the flattened one in the New Revised Standard, which says, for as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ. And this is what she wrote, and this, this has hit me a few weeks ago, and I've sort of been holding on to this until we got to this passage. She says, quote, The point to note is that in the first version, the verbs die and be made alive are postponed until the end of the two clauses. Whereas in the second version, not even the all-powerful name of Christ can save the sentence from dying off at the end. And then she says, this can further be underscored by the fact that although the juxtaposition of the names Adam and Christ is indeed central for the worldview of the Apostle Paul, as we know from 5.12 to 21, in the stronger sentence of Romans, that is, in the stronger sentence, even these crucial names are syntactically subordinate to the final 
all be made alive. Thus, in the weaker sentence, all will be made alive in Christ. Not only is the force of the verbs reduced, but the emphasis on all is also reduced because it has been moved away from the words made alive. And as a result, the two names, Adam and Christ, lose some of their force as well. Ending the sentence with the verb to be and its outcome, made alive, gives the reader a hint of the power of God that raises the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Reference there to Romans 4.17. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Now, she's very correct about that. The force is lost. We have to be careful how we translate. We have to be careful the translations we read. Now, given that gripping comparison of the English text, I can't stop there, of course. Going beyond is my middle name lately. I ask, does the more forceful King James Version square with or agree with the Greek text? That's the final test. Or does the flattened out and weak, in this case at least, New Revised Standard Version, which is good in other places, or does that weak and flattened version do justice to the Greek text? And the answer is to look to the Greek text. And it begins, and I'm not going to do a thorough thing on this, but it begins, and for this we're dealing with 1 Corinthians 15.22, a very critical verse in Paul's theology. It begins with the conjunction hosper, which looks like this in the Greek. It's a hard breathing, so it's H. It's an H sound. Hosper. And we would put it like this if we were to put it in English translation. Now, hosper is a word I never looked at before, but I said, let me look at it this time. Freiburg says that it's, quote, an emphatic marker of similarity. So we would say just exactly as. And Lunita, who deals with the words in their semantic domains, says a somewhat more emphatic marker of similarity between events and states. So already this word hosper gives us the sense that it's going to be just exactly the same amount of people who die in Adam the same exact number will be made alive in Christ. So there is a double all-inclusiveness already hinted at by this little one word. That's, that's the power of the Greek language in which the original message was inspired. Thayer, Joseph Thayer, always a good lexicon, says just as... He translates this as just as or even as. And then he goes on to say, and this is technical, but he says in a process with a finite verb and followed by utos, which it is here, O-U-T-O-S, utos, followed by utos as it is here. Or utos kai in the apodosis. In other words, the apodosis is the if and the Apodosis is the then part of the sentence. But he cites 1 Corinthians 15, 22 as an example of where hosper 
in apodosis is followed by utos in the apodosis. And that only, again, just emphasizes the fact that what we're dealing with here is exact similarity in both cases. In Adam, all die, just as in Adam, all without exception die. So just exactly in Christ, all without exception are made alive. It's very strong in the Greek text. So Ms. Rutledge is quite correct so far. Utos does in fact follow Hosper in 1 Corinthians 15:22 so that an exact similarity is indicated here. Again, that means that just as in Adam all mankind dies whether mankind wants to or not or wills that to happen or not. Let me say that again. It means that just as in Adam all mankind dies, whether mankind wants that to happen or wills that to happen or not. So, in Christ, all will be made alive, whether mankind wants that to happen or wills that to happen or not. The resurrection of the dead to life is just as universal as the death that came to all mankind through Adam. And this is very forceful in the Greek, as it is in this case in the King James. All will have the life of the coming age, which is a participation in the life of the risen Christ, in the newness of life that came about when Jesus Christ arose from the dead. It will be a participation in the life of Christ. This is not negated, as we've already seen, by Jesus' statement in John 5, 28 and 29, which is often referred to by the hell crowd, the hellists. That those who have done good will be raised to life, and those who have done evil will be raised to judgment. Did Jesus say that? Yes, he did. He also said that all judgment has been given to the Son of Man, to him. He also said in John 17 that God the Father has given to him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to whomsoever he will. And he wills eternal life for all. So John 5, 28 and 29 refers to the fact that those who have done the good are those who will have participated in Christ's life in the days of their unglorified flesh. That's like now for us. Whereas those who have done evil simply have not. They will be bodily raised to an acquittal as their judgment. Just as they are resurrected to a transformation by God's grace, as their punishment. I'll say that again. Those that have done the evil are those that have not embraced the life of Christ in this present life. They will be bodily raised to an acquittal as their judgment, just as they are resurrected to a transformation by God's grace as their punishment. In Christ, all will be made alive. 
Now, if that offends you, I should probably tell you that the whole epistle of Romans is about the justification of one class of people, and they are the ungodly in Romans 4, 5, and that God does this habitually. God does as a matter of fact. It's like the Geico commercial. It's what you do if you're God, what you do. You justify the ungodly, and you create something out of nothing. You cause to come into existence things that didn't exist before. God's power needs no help. God's grace needs no deserving. God's love requires no condition nor any restriction. And God's mercy is salvation. Titus 3, 5. And he will have mercy upon all. Romans eleven thirty two. So to contradict that and interpret John 5.29 as a resurrection unto damnation, or as Augustine and others used to say, he resurrects them, gives them an incorruptible body so they can suffer forever in it in an eternal blast furnace. Now that might not make sense to you anymore as it did a few years ago when you said, yeah, that's go God's justice, you know. Go retribution. Because all of our favorite movies were revenge movies. We got such pleasure out of seeing the judgment come down on the evildoers. That's just human nature. Well, let me just say it this way. That's just Adamic ontology. It's It's vindictive in its own right. It's vicious and desirous of punitive action. That's not God. So in the same way that all of humankind without exception die in Adam, so all without exception will be made alive in Christ. What we have here is a double inclusiveness, a double all-inclusiveness of humankind. Therefore, we see in Christ and Adam the two men as the only two bearers or carriers of human destiny. Thank God the first bearer of destiny only bore our destiny temporarily or for a time where the second bearer of destiny bears our destiny unto eternal life. In this passage, therefore, in Paul, we have perhaps most clearly portrayed the vision of Jesus Christ in his universally saving significance with emphasis on his enthronement, which we're headed toward in 1 Corinthians 15.25. Now, next comes the subordinating conjunction, gar, after that. I'm not going to probably hit every word, but I want to give you the sense of what happens when you look at the exact Greek text. Next comes the conjunction gar, that's G-A-R, often used in the New Testament. Here it's explanatory and could be translated as, for you see, it's kind of like a teacher's word, for you see, and so hosper precedes gar, so we could say just exactly, for you see, just exactly, hosper precedes gar in the sentence and it has the emphasis, therefore, this word has the emphasis, just exactly as, in the same way as, with the same amount of people involved in both cases, which is all without exception. 
Hosper and Gar as subordinating conjunctions back to back serve to make the clause in 1 Corinthians 15.22 dependent on what has gone before. Namely, that since through a man death came, so through a man comes the resurrection of the dead. It is imperative for our understanding and only God can grant you insight, not me. To recall that the death that came through a man poured upon or passed upon all mankind, Romans 5.12, and that because there is an exact similarity intended by the use of this little Greek subordinating conjunction, hosper, then the resurrection from the dead and thus to life through a man passes to all of humankind. In fact, we find that the King James Version in this remarkable case has the same emphases that are found in the Greek. Go figure. For the Greek text places the word pantes, which is the word for all without exception. Pantes. P-A-N-T-E-S. It places the word pantes, which is all. in the same emphatic position in both clauses. So the Greek places the word pantes in an emphatic position in both cases. So we have hosper gar ento adam pantes apothnesko, just as exactly as, for you see, just as exactly as in the Adam, the first man, the one individual Adam, all die. Utos backs that up and says, just exactly in the same way and the same proportion, in Christ, pantes, all in an emphatic position, zoiopoeo, which is the word for, are made alive. In both clauses, the protestant that begins with or the first opening clause that begins with hosper and the apotesis that begins with utos, the word pantes holds prominence in exact similarity. Both the man Adam, therefore, and the man Christ are seen and displayed here as bearers of the destiny of the totality of humankind. Now we're calling on Paul and saying, what do you really think about this? What's your theology say? Is your theology about a universal redemption of humanity and of all creation? Could that possibly be? Well, perhaps by saying that God makes or calls into existence things that don't exist, that yes, he's going to renew all of creation. And perhaps the fact that God raises the dead means, yes, all of humanity will be ultimately redeemed by having the same life as his son has. And again, if that's offensive to people, then we have to recognize Romans 4, 5, right at the heart of Paul's epistle, and really part of the total meaning of his epistle is that God justifies the ungodly even, and even especially when we see the ungodly as pious people. Pious people. 
if there's one thing we're learning from Romans so far, is that it is that justification never comes by works and can't. Okay. In Adam, all die because death passed all mankind through Adam's disobedience or his transgression. That again is found in Romans 5, 12 to 21. In Christ, all will be resurrected to life, not condemnation. Because life-giving justification passed to all humankind because of Christ's obedience or his act of righteousness, which is really the act of deliverance for all mankind. Now pass over to our second lady, theologian, Valeria Ramelli from the University of Milan, I believe. Speaking of the same passage, and as a segue to verse 23 in our exegesis, listing instances of universal restoration, specifically in Paul, Ramelli writes this on page 38, and I'm going page by page through that 825-page monstrous book just to find, because there's no index on it, which drives me nuts. For $328, would they include an index? No, of course not. An index of verses. So I'm going page by page to find references to 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 28 as appropriated by the patristic theologians, which are the early theologians who majored on the Greek, not the Western theologians like Augustine, who hated the Greek language and deviated to the Latin Vulgate, so we have the Latinization of terms like aeonios into eternus, so that when you say aeonios, which never means eternal, except in cases where it's talking about God, the Latin always makes it eternal. So when you see in Matthew twenty-five forty-one about eternal about aeonios colossus, which means a an action by which God transforms by a power outside of this world becomes eternal punishment. So I'm much more akin to the Eastern theologians who spoke Greek, the Cappadocian ones like Bardason and Origen and Gregory of Nyssa and later Ariogena also known as John the Scot. But speaking of this, Romelli writes on page 38, she says, another instance, speaking of Paul's universal restoration or ap- apocatastasis references, is 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-two to 23. See where I went with that? We're on the same passage. That's why I'm exegeting that passage, which is doubly inclusive. Yes, it is. Hilaria. 1 Corinthians 15, 23, which is doubly inclusive. Quote, just as all human beings die in Adam, so will all be vivified in Christ. Those who will be vivified, which is another word for made alive in Christ, are all human beings without exception. Talking about some bold ladies here where sometimes the men in the theological thing, are skirting around this. Could this possibly mean, can we hope that it might mean 
And she says, yeah, it means that. And she's a Catholic. So what do you think happens to people like that when the magisterium or the usually large group of men who determine dogma? I wonder what they're saying about this. I, I really don't know. It's interesting. But again, she says, those who will be vivified in Christ, I like that word, vivified, made alive in Christ, are all human beings without exception. The same who die in Adam without exception. See, she's got the grasp on the Greek text here. The vivification at stake does not seem to be simply the resurrection of the body, but rather seems to entail justification and salvation. And this is what is strongly suggested by Paul's parallel passage in Romans 5, 18 to 19. Because of one single human, condemnation has poured upon all human beings. Likewise, also, thanks to the work of justice of one single human. I like this translation. Vivifying justification pours upon all human beings. All humans, and then she actually has this in quote in in a parenthesis, will be constituted just. Again, these all, she goes on to write and concludes, again, these all who are made just and vivified by Christ are the same all who have been condemned by the transgression of Adam. That is... Absolutely all human beings. That's gutsy. I like that. I'd like to meet Elaria someday. If she was having to stand before a council of the magisterium, I'd stand shoulder to shoulder with her. Unless there was danger. Then I'd stand behind her and say, um, no, not really. I hope I would stand with the truth when it comes down to it, and it will. It will. So 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty three. let's look where this is going now. But each one in his own division. The word tagmati is used here. Interestingly, I found the word in the Septuagint. I looked up the Septuagint version of the LX, or the... Uh, Lexicon, and it's found in Numbers chapter 2 and verse 2, verses 2, 3, 10, 18, and 25. In every case, it talks about the Israelites in their encampment, and they were in divisions, like military divisions, and they each had a standard or a flag that represents their individual division. So Paul is revealing something here about the eschatological moments of resurrection. He said, It's all one made alive in Christ, but each in his own division. Christ, the first fruits, is the first division. Christ, the first fruits. It's the Greek word aparke. So on the flag over Christ, we would have him holding the flag aparke. Almost looks like Apache, but there's an R in there. Aparke. That means first fruits which is suggestive of a total harvest. That was what 
when someone had the first fruits offered to God of a harvest, they were, there was a great excitement and a great hope because that indicated a forthcoming universal harvest. And of course, that's why Jesus is called the first fruits from the dead, the first fruits. So the first division in resurrection, Christ the first fruits, then those who belong to Christ at his parousia. That means those who will be in his immediate presence when he appears, when he comes to stay, parousia. So that's you who have already partaken of his life. You already have the life of the coming age in the present time. God has situated this life right in the midst of an evil age, and he put it right in you when he elicited faith by the hearing of the gospel, by the gospel, the report of the gospel in you. You want to ask why me and someone, not someone else? Go ahead. I haven't got time for that question. I just say thank you that it is me and everyone else will be included someday. So I have no problem with it. Sometimes I say, why didn't you let me just live my life in lasciviousness and then die and be raised to life? <laughs> no, I don't do that anymore. Well, I'm only kidding about that one. I'm, I'm very glad when it comes down to it, and some days it does have to come down to it, I end up being thankful that he has given me life now. And all that that's meant in terms of cost to what you might have in life if you didn't have that, that's, that's, uh, none of that means anything. I've suffered the loss of all things, said Paul. And he was very happy about that, and he wrote them off freely all things that he might have had or could have had he wrote them off for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus his Lord my Lord Christ the first fruit so we'll be holding the flag parousia we're part of the parousia division now this is some things I've never said about this passage and this is things I have never read about this passage that I'm about to deliver to you now so we're on some new ground, but one, as usual, we will test it. And we'll wait until the ice is thick enough to drive a Volkswagen bus out on, which we used to do when we went ice fishing. People would drive. We knew the ice was thick enough to skate on because somebody always drove their Volkswagen bus out on the pond, out on the lake called Lake Perrin, and we said, well, the ice has to be at least 12 inches thick to hold that thing up. So this is what I do. I start off on thin ice, but then I let the ice thicken and the ice thicken so that we can walk across on it. So it'll be safe. The Aparque division, then the Parousia division, which I think explains 2 Thessalonians 1.10. In the Parousia, or in that day when he comes to be glorified in his saints, or glorified by his saints, and to be wondered at by all those who have believed. At the parousia, then, there are those who have believed, and they will wonder at their Lord, and they will be wondered at by all creation. Because when Christ appears, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you, the parousia division, will appear in glory with him. But don't despair. There's also a third division called the telos 
division, T-E-L-O-S. Now remember, and I'm going to, I have something. Just remember this word, the number rather, 738. Remember the number 738. Because this is what's lodged in my mind. Note 38. And if I don't do this in the next five messages, holler to me right in the middle of the, of the right at the beginning of the message, when are you going to do 738? Because I don't want to forget this. There's, a, there's a, a, a doctrine that I call Note 738. And it's very important. So, in this we have to note... God is the Savior of all of humankind. 1 Timothy 4.10 states, especially those who believe. It does not say exclusively of those who believe. It says especially of those who believe. 1 Timothy 4.10, in connection with 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4, we're going to be dealing with the pastoral epistles then, soon. Then the third division with the flag, the standard of the flag, is telos. The telos division. Which is, comes up in 1 Corinthians 15, 24. Then comes the end. But it's not then comes the end, like there's nothing else left. It's then comes the telos division, which just might be that part of humanity that had not believed in their mortal lives but are raised to life the telos division and that comes up again in 1524 which I hope maybe we'll hit already tomorrow night quoting again from Romelli because of the pertinence of this to the Next four verses, which we're going to come up to soon. Pertinent to the next four verses, which is 24, really five verses, 24 to 28. Yeah, that's 24, 25, 26, 27, 20. Okay, that's good. She says this again. This is page 38 and 39. I'm going to end up quoting her whole book before I die probably. But she said, The same universalism is evident in another clearly eschatological passage by Paul. 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 28. There Paul foretells that Christ will reign, there's his enthronement, until all enemies have submitted to him. Whereas death will be destroyed. Death doesn't submit. Death gets annihilated. And death is personified as an enemy. It's the last enemy. That's my comment. She says, at that point, Christ will hand the kingdom, that is, all of his subjects, to the Father, so that God will be all in all. Now, origin, that's O-R-I-G-E-N. Your spell check will go crazy if you spell it that way. And Gregory of Nyssa, N-Y-S-S-A, we dealt with them heavily in Revelation, will heavily rely on this passage to support apocatastasis, which in their view will take place after the disappearance of all evil and the submission of all to Christ. They interpret this universal submission not as forced, but as voluntary. 
The Greek text bears this out, as we've seen in Philippians 2, 9 through 11, and in Philippians 3, 21. So Origen and Gregory of Nyssa, two very respectable patristic theologians, interpret this universal submission not as force but as voluntary and thus coinciding with universal salvation. There's another lady not afraid to say it. She's not a hopeful universalist. She's a convinced universalist. So in closing, let's just look example of 1 Corinthians 15.24, an initial view of 1 Corinthians 15.24. Then the telos. Now remember, he's not talking about here the end of everything, the end of the world or the end of anything else. He's using the word telos as the third division in the resurrection. First, aparche, the first fruits. Second, parousia, those that belong to him at his, in his presence or at his appearing in the parousia, his coming. Then, telos, the telos division, who will be resurrected to life when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father. And when he, that's God the Father, will have abolished all rule and every holder of authority and power in opposition to God's all-powerful grace. That's my translation of 1 Corinthians 15, 24, and I'll demonstrate it in the future. Then the telos division who will be resurrected to life when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he, the Father, will have abolished all rule and every holder of authority and power in opposition to God's all-powerful grace. Everything in opposition to God's all-powerful grace submits. Now, Jesus Christ is not only the beginning, but also the telos, the end So then comes the end is a definite Christological reference and a definite resurrectional reference. Jesus Christ is not only the beginning, but also the end. He arche kai totelos. He arche kai totelos. Where do we see that? Revelation 22, 13. Just before he says, I, Jesus, the bright and morning star, he calls himself the beginning and the end. So this telos division of resurrection is embodied by Jesus Christ just as much as the parousia. Tagmati, the parousia division. Overcoming and surmounting once again the dichotomy of believing and unbelieving, therefore overcoming and surmounting the dichotomy of a resurrection unto damnation and a resurrection unto life. It is all a resurrection unto life in Christ. Now you get people that fool around with this 1 Corinthians 15, 22, and they're dangerously treading on not even thin ice, but slush on the top of the pond. They fool around with this. And I remember 
I think it was a couple of years ago I read that Rob Bell's book on love wins, and then this uh, a fundamentalist author came up and says, no, God wins. So there was this huge dialectic, this dialectic of contradictories, and I read both books, gave them a fair shot. Love wins and God wins. But the guy that said God wins means God wins when he sends half of humanity into hell. God's justice wins. So what I said was, let me come up with a middle term. Love wins or God wins? I put a middle term in there and says God, who is love, wins. So that's where I'm coming from, the middle term. God's grace Christ's grace, by the grace of the one man, all receive justifying life, says Romans 5.18. You say, why do you keep harping on a few verses of Paul? I'll tell you why the few verses are important. Because hundreds of verses lead up to those climactic few verses that summarize Paul's message of universal redemption. That's why. Romans 11.32 came after hundreds of verses that God imprisoned all under disobedience and unbelief that he might have mercy upon all. That isn't just a verse that I picked out. That's a verse that is the climax of hundreds of verses before it, you see. The same with 1 Corinthians 15.22. The same with Romans 5.18-19. The same with 1 Timothy 4.10. The same with these verses that we're talking about. It seems like we're hovering over a very few verses, but every single one of these represents a climax, climactic crescendo of hundreds of verses before it. So it kind of like tells us what Paul's theology is all about. And it's all about a universal redemption. Paul isn't all about individual justification earned either by works or by an act of faith. He's about a universal redemption as all the prophets were since the beginning from time immemorial. God spoke through the prophets about apocatastasis pantone in Acts 3.21. Can't leave that theme alone. I thought you said you were closing, someone says. I did say I was closing. I didn't say how long the closing was going to be. His grace embraces, therefore, the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, embraces the telos Division, that division of humanity that will be raised holding the telos flag. I used to call that F troop before I understood that, you know, there's F troop. Remember F troop? That was a never mind. It was a bunch of losers in the uh, United States cavalry out west. But this isn't, the, this isn't F troop. These are just as much embodied by Christ in his resurrection as the Perusia division. Because when it's all said and done, the only people that get justified are the ungodly. And that demolishes, I mean demolishes, all religiosity and human piety that likes to advertise its deserving from God of some blessing or other. 
scubula. So in great, his grace embraces the telos division of the bodily resurrection just as much as he embraces those who belong to him by believing into him, by having faith elicited by the hearing of the gospel. He is Lord of the living and the dead. Of those who are still dead in sins, he's the Lord. As well as those who are dead in graves, he's the Lord. In fact, I might even suggest, uh, let me put it in terms of a question, because it'd be too thin of ice otherwise. Can we say that every human being that ever died, whether in Adam or in Christ when they died, are now in Christ? And there is no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. That's thin ice. Don't walk on it yet. Don't walk on that ice yet. Not yet. Let's let it thicken. It's got to get colder. You say it's cold enough in here. It's not zero yet. He's Lord of the living and the dead. Of those who are still dead in sins, as well as those who are dead in graves. And of those who have been made alive with him, he's Lord of those who have been made alive together with him. In this life, as well as those who are with him, having fallen asleep or died in him. There's no domain or corner of any domain where Jesus is not Lord And that includes, if you want to include the mythical places called Hades, go ahead. He's Lord. Hades was once a person who was supposedly the ruler of the dead along with Thanatos. But we learned that Thanatos plus Hades were both cast into the lake of fire. Those are the only, that's the only name that didn't, wasn't found in the Lamb's Book of Life. The names in the Lamb's Book of Life are all of humanity. But those things that were not creatures of God, like death and Hades, are not in the Book of Life. So they don't make the cut into the new creation. That's good news. What I'm preaching to you, we like to call it the gospel. Father, thank you for this opportunity. You've afforded it to us. You've opened the door. You've not allowed the door to shut for these past 55 minutes or for the double speeders, 29 minutes or whatever. And we thank you. Nothing in this message will be understood unless you illuminate our understanding. So we stand in utter dependence both as the communicator and the receiver, all of us as receivers. And now, Father, we